Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord, what fools these mortals be. Some of you might recognize where that comes from. I kind of gave it away earlier during announcement time, but uh, that does not come from the scriptures. That puckish observation, there's your clue, comes from none other than Puck himself, Shakespeare's fairy-like character who's given to mischief and merriment from the Bard's comedy. Anybody know? Midsummer Nights. You probably performed in that play, I bet, Stacy. Well, clearly, it's too early to call it summer while we're still making our way through April. But uh, nevertheless, this quote from Puck is right on time for our purposes. Because in fact, the quote itself, what fools, almost sounds like the quote from our gospel lesson. Our gospel, where we find our Lord Jesus freshly risen from the grave, now walking along the Emmaus Road with two disciples, whom at one point Jesus calls foolish. Foolish and slow of heart to believe. Now the question is, why would Jesus call those disciples so thick-headed and so slow-hearted, as another Bible translation renders it? And the next part of it is, do we today also deserve that same kind of loving rebuke from our Lord? These are the questions we'll look at this morning as we walk together through this passage, Luke 24. We'll learn a good deal more as well about where to look for Jesus ourselves today as 21st century believers. So let's go back to the top of our gospel lesson. Uh, Verse 13. Verse 13 says, that very day, So it was still that very first Easter Sunday. We're lingering on that day, and for good reason. Yes, Jesus really got around that day in his resurrected, glorified body, all the post-resurrection appearances that he made. The scene here ends about seven miles away from Jerusalem. Now, biblical and archaeological experts have not yet been able to identify the exact location of Emmaus, Unlike, say, Capernaum in Galilee, for which there is an abundance of evidence uncovered confirming that city's exact location. But what we do know, because Luke comes right out and tells us, that one of these downcast disciples on the Emmaus Road is named Cleopas. The other unnamed disciple, on the other hand, is the subject of some uh, speculation. One school of thought says that this Greek name, Cleopas, is close to the Hebrew name, Clopas. And there is a Clopas mentioned in John's account of the crucifixion. You might recall it. That's where it says, near the cross of Jesus stood Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, there it is, and Mary Magdalene. There's all those Marys again. If Cleopas on the Emmaus Road is the same as Clopas, then that would make this other unnamed disciple on the Emmaus Road most likely either Clopas' wife, Mary, or their son, one Simeon, who tradition tells us later becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church, the Simeon. Furthermore, both Catholic and Orthodox traditions identify Clopas 
as the brother of Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. That would make Clopas Jesus' earthly uncle. And that would maybe make the rebuke of being called foolish and slow of heart, it might make it sting a bit more coming from your nephew. Ouch. We probably wouldn't like something like that. But that's just speculation too. Personally, I prefer this other disciple to remain unnamed because it seems like Luke is inviting the reader, presumably a disciple himself or herself, to insert themselves into these events. You know, like walk a mile in their shoes or seven miles in their sandals in this case. There's a very important detail in this passage that is so basic, it's too easy to skip over. But I don't want us to. This little detail is what makes the whole plot turn in the first place. And it's what verse 15 says. Quote, and Jesus himself drew near, unquote. That's it. Jesus himself drew near. Jesus drew near and went with these disciples. So to whom does Jesus draw near? And with whom does he go? We already covered that. Jesus draws near to thick-headed disciples and goes patiently along with those who are slow of heart to believe. That's who. And that's good news. That's blessed assurance for you and me. You and I can breathe a sigh of relief. We're in. We qualify for Jesus' abiding presence wherever we go. Right there from Matthew 28, the Great Commission. And truly I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You foolish ones and you slow to believe. Okay, I added that part. But we're there. And it isn't just about being foolish and slow to believe. These disciples were also decidedly down and dejected. When Jesus asks in verse 17, what were you two talking about? It arrests their forward progress on the road. The text says, and they just stood still, looking sad. What I mean to point out here is that this Jesus is there still today when you are hurting, when the weight of your life and maybe the death of loved ones bears down on you to the point of pain and deep sorrow in your soul. Jesus draws near you. Your resurrected, glorified Lord and Savior draws near to you. Believe it. You may not see it or see him, even as these disciples were kept from seeing him, but he was still there alongside him of them, wasn't he? These disciples were kept from recognizing him until the appointed time, which we'll get to toward the end of our walk together through today's passage. But like I said, this first question out of Jesus' mouth stuns these two disciples. And it kind of seems like Cleopas starts to lose it a little bit when he sharply answers Jesus' question with a question. Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about what's been happening during these last few days? Now, as sad as these disciples genuinely are, and not to disrespect that at all, Still, one cannot help but pick up on the humor in light of the resurrection. It's kind of funny. Here's Cleopas asking Jesus about Jesus. How can you not know about these very recent events? Cleopas asks Jesus. 
And I could just hear Jesus reply, oh, uh, yeah, I think I have a pretty good idea of everything that's gone on. Believe me, and what you don't know, Cleopas, and you, disciple number two, is that this really was not just about recent, a recent set of events that just transpired. No. In fact, Peter is going to absolutely get it right when he writes about me. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. 1 Peter 1. So yes, this was a very, very long time in the making. Now, of course, I really do not know if Jesus thought or even said any of that, and it's always pretty dangerous to speculate or attribute our words to the one who is the word of God made flesh. So let's get back to the text on safe ground. What does Jesus do next according to our gospel passage? Verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus points out he is the center and substance of all the scripture. Oh, the New Testament. And so, man, come on, would you not love to be a part of that Bible study on the road to Emmaus that Jesus is giving about himself, the one who inspired the word in the first place? What passages, passages do you think they looked up together? They would have had in all likelihood no scroll of the sacred scriptures. Hardly anybody did own that. And let alone would they carry it around with them on their seven-mile hikes, right? Who wants to do that? They didn't have Apple watches. Uh, did you know I got the whole Bible, Old and New Testament on this? I can go on a seven-mile hike anywhere and listen to the whole Bible. But do I take full advantage of that? No, because I'm foolish. For the Emmaus Road Bible study that these three had going on as they walked, it all had to be recited from memory. That's crazy. In Jesus' case, I'm sure it did help that he inspired the whole Bible. Now Moses, where Jesus starts, right, wrote the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, from penta meaning five. And that includes Genesis, the book of beginnings, as you know. Jesus had plenty of parts to pick out from that particular book. And perhaps he started with the curse of the serpent after the fall which also contains the first promise of a Savior. They're one and the same. Serpent cursed, Savior promised. In Genesis 3.15, God says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, if you're Jesus... You get to punctuate that prophecy from Genesis 3.15 by saying something like this. Yeah, that head crushing of the serpent, that is part of these recent events to which you are referring, Cleopas. I just did that. I took care of that on the cross. And then bursting out of the tomb, done. Serpent's head is crushed. Next. There's still plenty more material in the book of Genesis. Among all that viable material, there's the story of Abraham's faith in God. Got to address that one, of course, from Genesis chapter 22. And that's where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Isaac, who's the son of the promise. The one 
God had called Abraham's only son, but it wasn't Abraham's only son. Isaac had an older brother, Ishmael, but it wasn't born of Sarah and the promise that she would have a child in her old age. And so uh, how was that promise going to continue to be true if Isaac sacrifice, excuse me, if Abraham sacrifices Isaac? How are Abraham's descendants to be outnumbering all the stars at night that you can see? How could this be if Isaac is killed? Well, the New Testament author of the book of Hebrews explains, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, it says. And so in a manner of speaking, says the author of Hebrews, Abraham did receive Isaac back from death. Okay, well, who's being pointed to there? That is a great scripture where the sacrifice almost takes place on Mount Moriah in the Old Testament. Guess what? That's Jerusalem in the New Testament where Jesus just outside on Golgotha was crucified. So it's easy to see how this scripture points to Jesus. Now, time doesn't permit um, any more passages from Genesis. Um, Remember, they had about two and a half hours to walk to pull up more verses on their Emmaus Road Bible study. So let's look at the next book um, by Moses, Exodus. The Passover lamb was slaughtered in order that its life-saving blood would be splashed onto the doorpost and might stave off the angel of death so that it would pass over, pass by that household. The story also points to Jesus the greater Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the entire world, not just the family inside that house with their blood on the doorpost. The entire world. That's what John said Jesus was. Besides Moses leading God's people out of Egypt, Moses also prepares the Israelites to enter into the promised land, but without him. Remember, Moses himself was disqualified from going in. And um, before they go in, in part ways, Moses predicts that, quote, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Now, fast forward into the New Testament, where Moses shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? With Peter, James, and John, and who else? Elijah. And they're all talking with Jesus about his exodus, Jesus' exodus, it says. God's voice, the Father, speaks from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. So that's what Moses said. He predicted a prophet will come, and he is the one to whom you should listen. And God the Father, none none other than God himself, says this is my son. Listen to him in the presence of Moses. So that's the prediction back from Deuteronomy 18. Now there are prophecies, there are types and shadows, things like manna, water from a rock, even a bronze snake that points to Jesus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that all who look to him will be saved. And then there are verses from Psalm 22, my God, why have you forsaken me? And many other psalms as well. And you have more direct prophecies, uh, likewise, from Isaiah 7, 9, 52, 53, many other places in Isaiah's book. And also from Ezekiel, the prophet, Daniel, Micah, Zechariah. There was even one special figure from the prophets that Jesus said, even his doubters will um, witness as a sign. 
And I'm talking about the sign of Jonah. Jesus said, for just as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. From Matthew 12. So there are even prophecies that point to the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist, the one in the wilderness who announces Christ's coming just as Malachi the prophet said, Behold, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. So Jesus and his Emmaus road companions had over the course of their seven miles a lot more than just the 17 minutes we have to go through it. It's estimated that a seven-mile walk, as I mentioned, could last a good uh, two hours or more. If they indeed talked for that full seven miles, they would have covered a lot of ground. And the text doesn't specify for us at what point Jesus um, on the road did Jesus meet up with them. But you get the definite impression it was long enough for Jesus to make an impression. When they finally get to their village, it says Jesus acted as if he were going further. He kind of faked them out. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So after all their talking, these two disciples wanted more. They wanted more. I imagine that is exactly how it's going to be for you and me, hanging out with this humble king, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. I think even eternity won't be long enough to be in that humble king's presence. And I like that little juke step. Uh, Jesus apparently gives his fellow travelers in verse 28, where he fakes left and goes right. Uh, Jesus goes right into their home at their insistence, and then right to their kitchen table. There at table with them, Jesus, this visitor, assumes the role of host. He takes the bread, normally something the owner of the house would do. Jesus leads the blessing, then breaks the bread open, and distributes it to them. Now, what does that remind you of? And it was only at that very moment that the eyes of these disciples were finally and fully opened. Their joy was also full. And after he vanished before their eyes, they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? On the road, Jesus opened the scriptures to them And then at table, he opened them, their hearts, to the scriptures and to the one about whom the scriptures all testify. This whole time, Jesus was leading them up to that very special moment. It was their Easter epiphany. In the breaking of the bread, he opened their eyes to see who was the real host and where they are to look to find him. You can look right here. This is is he who draws near to fools and patiently instructs fools. He understands our mortality because he suffered mortal wounds for our sake. He is the Savior that we can trust because he came back from the grave glorified. And by guiding these two Emmaus disciples, he is by extension guiding us today as to where to look and find him in word and sacrament. All of us in one sense or another are on our Emmaus road, somewhere between sadness and gladness, despair and hope. Too many people are still lost along that road as well. So even as we disciples find forgiveness 
and healing for ourselves by faith in the risen one? Strangely, unpredictably, he authorizes us, fools, to reach out to still others, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name should be proclaimed to all nations. He, he still opens eyes and hearts to his glory. Amen. And now may he who began a good work in you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.